0: The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided." And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his, be- if his passions are strong, and it has to be, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Got uh, some stuff to get set up up here a little bit. Uh, I'm just going to apologize right away. Um, I am I guess I could, you could just say that I'm under the weather. Uh, I don't know if it's, I think it's just allergies, but I've been feeling pretty awful, and I barely made it through a wedding last night, um, uh, so I don't think the bride or groom got their money's worth out of me last night. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you, it's gonna, it, it could be rough this morning, so I'm asking God to help me, uh, but the sound guy is going to be earning his money back there. If I turn my head, he's going to be muting me as fast as he can, because um, coughing a lot, can hardly uh, can hardly really talk. So, uh, just happy Mother's Day. Sorry about that, moms. If you're here for the first time, uh, I'm sorry. It's going It could be a little rough this morning. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and pr- I'm gonna pray and let's go ahead and jump in. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Son. For those of us who are in Christ, we say with that with that song. All we have is Christ. Everything we have is in Jesus. He is the chief aim of our heart. He is the chief thing that we possess, um, the chief thing that we are possessed by. We, we thank you so much for sending your son and who he has been to us and how he saved us and how he loves us and how he is near to us and how he walks with us and how he gives grace to us over and over every day and every hour of every day. Uh, We could do nothing without him, and we cling to him this morning, and we give praise to him this morning, and uh, we ask that you would show us more of him through this text this morning as we seek to study it. Uh, May your spirit be here. Uh, May you think through my mind. May you speak through my voice. May you touch my vocal cords today and help me. Uh, May you touch our ears to hear what you'd have us to say. This is all for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, happy Mother's Day. Mothers, we are thankful that you are here. You have a thankless job for the most part, and I hope uh, your sons at least gave you a card or said thank you or, said, or in, and daughters said uh, happy Mother's Day to you this morning. If not, we are here. We want to wel- welcome you and wish you a happy Mother's Day. If you didn't see it on the way in, we have a photo booth set up for you guys so families can get together and uh, get some professional photography. Uh, one announcement, this Thursday night, We are having a hymn sing right here at 6.30 p.m. So it's going to be a night where we're partnering with Morningstar Academy, and it's going to be a night or an hour or so of singing of hymns. And our band's leading it, and uh, we're going to have some families from Morningstar come out. We're going to have hopefully some students from Morningstar come out as well, and we're welcoming our whole Sacred City family. So bring out your family uh, this Thursday night, 6.30, right here, and enjoy uh, uh, an hour or so. Of, uh, of, of a hymn sing, so it's going to be a great opportunity for us to, to sing and, and worship our great God and Savior. Um, I think that's about it. I'm going to go ahead and, and jump in this morning. If you didn't know, at Sacred City, we just go through books of the Bible, so I know a lot of churches, if you go, you're you'd probably be expecting like a Mother's Day sermon, and, and we don't really do that around here. We just go right through books of the Bible. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so if you have your Bible, you can open that up. Or if you have your phone, you can open up your little digital fake Bible and get, get to the spot where you need to be. Um, if you have an iPhone or an Android device, um, if you go to the Uversion app, you can uh, search in live events, Sacred City Church, and all of our liturgy is right there for you to follow along. You can also, Sacred City has an app for iPhones. So if you go to your app store, and you, you can search Sacred City Church, and we have an app there for you. So go ahead and, and do that. And we're going to head and jump in this morning. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, about AD 50 to 52, somewhere around there. And he was a good pastor. He started this church in the city of Corinth. He lived with them for a couple of years, teaching them who God is and how God was at work in their generation. And then in his words, he laid a foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he was doing. Then God led Paul on into the mission of God and he sent him to Ephesus. And he went to Ephesus to plant more churches, which is where he is when he's writing this letter back to the church that's in Corinth. I can only imagine how heartbroken Paul was to hear of the internal dissension that was going on in the church, the blatant sexual immorality, the selfishness that was plaguing this young church, You know, he's in Ephesus and he's hearing all these bad reports and I can just imagine how disturbed and distraught he was. As a pastor, you really get a front row seat to the destructiveness and deceitfulness of human sin. Selfishness, greed, envy, left unchecked and unrepented wreaks havoc on churches, missional communities, Marriages, families, and destroys our own abilities to flourish as human beings. Human beings aren't meant, they can't flourish if they're envious, they can't flourish if they're selfish. Pastors seek to love people by, listen, seek to love people by applying the word of God to their specific situation and circumstances. Pastors don't love people by coddling them by petting them, by cuddling them, by telling them what they want to hear. God actually has another word for those types of pastors. Charlatans, false teachers, tell people, it says, the scripture says, gives people what their itching ears want to hear. So if you walk away from a sermon going, yes, oh, that's just what I wanted to hear. You better check that message that you just heard. That message tells you, here's three tips to be happy, healthy, wealthy, prosperous. You better check yourself. You better check the teacher. See, good pastors, they don't promote their own agenda. They don't say things uh, in a very watered-down way to gain a crowd and to gain popularity and get their cover on a book. They aren't people pleasers. Good pastors study the scriptures, study the culture, and love people well by feeding them the truth, by taking the eternal truths of scripture and trying to apply them to people in their specific situations. And Paul has been given us a spectacular display of how to do just that. How do you confront sin and promote holiness, knowing that holiness is the only true way to human flourishing? How do you do that in a non-legalistic way? How do you do that in a non-judgmental way? How do you do that in a gospel-centered way? Paul has been schooling us in the art of pastoring, taking the words of Jesus, contextualizing them for the specific people and people groups inside the church of Corinth, and calling them to live in line with their new Christian identities. You are no longer of the world, you are now in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. Now, live like this because of your new identity in Christ. And this week, Paul is going to turn his attention to the singles, to single people and widows. But don't worry, if you aren't single or widowed, there's still going to be plenty of good stuff in here for us all. Statistics say that 90% of Americans wish to be married, are currently married, or have been married in the past. Marriage is still a dominant social norm in our cultural landscape, and it's been this way, no matter what some people say, it's been this way since Adam and Eve, since the first wedding ceremony when God brought a man and a woman together in a covenant of marriage. But how vital is marriage to the life of a Christian? How important is it? How much weight should we put upon it? How much weight should it carry in our attitudes and in our behaviors? Is marriage mandatory for believers? Those are some of the questions that Paul is answering in chapter 7 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And today, he's going to specifically address single people and widows, right? So he's going to address, more than likely, two groups of people who are in the want to be married category, right? Widows used to be married. Depending upon their age and where they're at in their life, they might be thinking about, uh, I don't want to be married. Maybe I do want to be married. Should, okay, if I'm widowed and I'm 30, should I get remarried? If I'm 50, should I get remarried? Like, what's the deal? Like, how important is Christian marriage? And single people are like, uh, you know, especially in this culture, it's very young. You know, women got married between the ages of 13 and 16, statistically, Right? So very young, and they're arranged marriages, right? So how important is marriage? And this is what Paul is going to address. Ba- basically, in the Jewish culture, if you weren't married, you were kind of seen as um, second class, as there was something wrong with you, right? So, so marriage culturally had a lot of weight. Now let's get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. So that's kind of like some of the context. Now let's dig into this. Paul writes and says, so now concerning, so he's turning his attention from specifically the married couples he's been talking about, talking to specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now he's saying, now concerning the betrothed. Now that word betrothed, we don't really use that, right? That's a Greek word that's been translated, uh, and it's the Greek word parthenos. And it actually is a Greek word for virgin. So all Paul really says there is now concerning the virgins, but he uses it in a feminine way. So he's specifically speaking to uh, female virgins, female virgins of a marrying age. So, I mean, these girls went through puberty and basically were given off into marriage uh, in some kind of arranged marriage. So he's talking about the women who are uh, being prepared for marriage and are at that marrying age. Now concerning the betrothed, Paul says, I have no command from the Lord. Okay, now some of us read that and go, oh, so Paul's just winging it here. Well, I don't really, God doesn't really care about this, so here's my opinion, All right? Like m- many pastors do on a Sunday morning. Uh, actually, that's not what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing is saying Jesus did not specifically address virgins and single people on the topic of marriage. Jesus taught on marriage. He taught on uh, a lot of things. He gave us some big principles, and now it's a pastor's job to take those big principles and contextualize them for specific people, okay? That's like, Jesus didn't talk about the internet, so I can just use it however I want. Well, no, right? He taught some big principles, and we need to contextualize those principles for our specific audience and our situation in life. So, keep reading. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. God's speaking through him. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, the present distress, you can underline that or circle that. N.T. Wright, one of the leading scholars on the New Testament, says that this present distress was twofold. First, right around AD 51, when Paul was writing this, there was a severe distress grain shortage throughout the Roman Empire. Grain was the dominant food source for the Roman Empire, especially for the poor, of which uh, was the majority of the church in Corinth. The majority of church in Corinth was uh, the lower class. And there are many like writings in antiquity outside of the Bible that speak of this grain, of this grain shortage. So according to Wright, many Roman citizens and colonists had taken it for granted that the Roman Empire would keep them safe. It would keep them safe. It would keep them sound. It would keep them well-fed. The Roman Empire was the greatest empire to ever exist in this day. Hey, we can trust Rome, right? They can feed us. Our hope is in Rome. They've conquered all of our enemies. They've conquered all the lands around us. They're feeding us with grain. And all of a sudden, the grain, a grain shortage happens And that belief in the goodness of their government, of the sovereignty of their government, is shaken. Suddenly, (laughs) their food has run out. It's amazing what a hungry stomach can do for your faith. A great question mark now hung over the whole imperial world was everything going horribly wrong? Is the government going to topple? Is the end come? Right? I, I could just really go off right now. but So Paul is speaking, saying now in light of the present distress, in light of this famine that's taking place right now, he's going to say, because of all of this, here's some guidelines for followers of Jesus. Because of our context, here's some guidelines for followers of Jesus of Jesus. Verse 26, I think it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? This does not mean are you married? This, are you engaged right now? Do not seek to be free. So you don't, just because all hell is breaking loose out there just because you're hungry and the government might not be working things out right and you might not be in agreement with that. It might be, you might have some doubt over the goodness or the sovereignty of your government. Okay, don't don't break the engagement off. Just because that's happening, don't break the engagement off. Look what else? Are you free from a wife? Are you not engaged? Good, then do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned And if a betrothed woman, this is more like in the engaged sense, if an engaged woman marries, she has not sinned. Uh Uh-oh, there should be a big amen after this. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is so contrary to our apocalyptic idea of marriage that we have in our culture today. Find the right person, and everything will be okay. Find the right person, and life will be better. Being single is so hard. If I just got married, everything would work out. Except it won't. Are you married? Stay that way. Are you single? Stay that way. Are you engaged to be married? Stay that way. Are you engaged but want to be married? Okay, go ahead, do that. It's not a sin, get married. See, Paul is, <laughs> it seems like he's foggy, but he's not. He's actually really clear. He's really nuanced. He's saying, hey, this grain shortage is difficult. You're in a difficult, difficult cultural climate right now. So maybe it would be better just to stay as you are. Don't complicate things anymore because if you get married, it's going to add some complexity to it. It's going to make things a little more difficult. Paul is, listen, Paul is no legalist. He is not, this is not a black and white issue. Marriage is good, single is bad. It's not clear like that. It's nuanced. He's saying things are really difficult. Food is short. People are dying. Right, says this, Christians in Corinth would be facing all kinds of pressures. The natural desire of an engaged couple to consummate their marriage and get on with building a life together. Like you have this pressure, right? You're engaged. Okay, when's the, when's the wedding ceremony? When's the wedding? And you've got this pressure on you to plan a wedding and to plan the next 15 years of your life. Oh yeah, we're gonna have kids on this date and this date and this date. We're gonna, have, we're gonna be perfectly spaced apart. and We're gonna have this house. We're gonna have this home. We're all gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. He's gonna do that. A lot of pressure to plan things out. The huge social pressure on young women in particular to get married and bear children. The anxiety about the present food shortages. Do you really want to start a family and you have to feed more mouths? If you can hardly feed yourself, do you really want to start a family? Like there's this pressure. And then on top of it all, there's this desire like, how do we be a Christian in this time? How do we serve the Lord during this season. And Paul wants to help them, like a good pastor, apply the teaching of Jesus, the word of God, to their present circumstance. And it's not easy. It's not black and white. He doesn't just slap a Bible verse on it. He's trying to say, who you are as a Christian matters much more than changing your social status. So don't be worried about whether you may need to postpone your marriage. It's not a problem. There's no pressure on you for that. So that's issue number one. In the present distress that Paul is referring to here, saying the the grain shortage, right? But Paul is also using this grain shortage as a reference and as a picture of the ultimate crisis that is coming on the day of the Lord's return. Look at verse 29. This is what I mean. I love it. He said something, and he's like, okay, but let me, let me, that wasn't very clear. So this is what I mean. He's a good preacher. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time, and that word appointed, we threw, uh, interpreters and scholars threw in there to kind of give us a nuance of a meaning, but it actually says the time has grown Very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as they were not rejoicing and those who buy as they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. The present form of the world is passing away. Now, when Paul says the time has grown very short, this is where many people Uh, go wrong in in interpreting this section of scripture. Some people say, oh, Paul obviously thought that Jesus was going to return any moment. That Jesus' return was right around the corner. He obviously thought that Jesus, he was expecting Christ to come now, like today or tomorrow. The appointed time has grown really short, so he thinks that Jesus is right around the corner. So marriage doesn't really matter. So many people think that Paul's saying, oh, since Jesus is coming back soon, just hold off on marriage. Like, what's the point, right? Jesus is right around the corner. Don't even think about kids. Don't think about the career. Don't think about all those things. Jesus is coming back soon. Many people teach that. Many people still believe that and teach that today. Like, don't worry about marriage, guys. Don't worry about building a life or starting a career or expanding your family. All that's pointless because Jesus is coming back any day, right? Right? You can find a channel on TV that'll tell you all about that. All right? Buy the t-shirt, read the books, build a bunker, do whatever you want to do. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Right? That's not what Paul's saying. But in order for us to see that, we're going to have to know the difference. We're going to have to do a little Greek. Okay? We're going to have to know the difference between two Greek words. Chronos and kairos. Chronos and kairos. These the ancient Greeks had two words for time. The first was chronos, which we still use in words like chronological, right? It refers to to clock time that can be measured. Seconds, minutes, hours, years. That's chronological, right? That's the word chronos. But the second word for time is kairos, where chronos is quantitative Kairos is qualitative. It measures moments, not seconds. Further, it refers to the right moment or the opportune moment, the perfect moment. So if I say, now is the time, you realize I'm not seeing whatever actual time it is, right? Like, this is the moment. This is a special moment. The definition of kairos is this. Listen, kairos is a passing instant when an opening appears, which must be driven through with force, if success is to be achieved. A moment when an opportunity opens itself and you got to go now or you miss it. Like for a running back, when he gets that ball and the linemen open up, there's a moment. He takes it now or or he misses it, right? And a that's the moment, and that's his time. Now, the quarterback doesn't say, okay, in 36 seconds, there'll be an opening, right? That's Kronos, not Kairos. And to illustrate maybe a little bit better, uh, one of the best shows ever on television uh, just was resurrected this past week, and it's called 24. And if you've never seen 24, you get uh, both aspects of time playing a key factor. Uh, Keither Sutherland, Jack Bauer, you might say is the main actor, but I would actually say that no, actually time is the main actor. Because in this show, you see chronos, chronological time playing a key aspect, key role in it, that every episode, so let me do this, every season is one day, one 24-hour period. There's 24 episodes to every season. Every episode is one hour every commercial break, what do you hear? Beep! 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 Counting every second, okay? So, chronological time plays a key role in this show, but the real actor in the show is Kairos, because Kairos, if you've ever noticed, if you ever watched the show, there's always a moment, and Jack Bauer is always caught up in the moment. This is the moment. The whole world depends upon this moment. If I don't act, if I don't step up, if I don't do something, the president will be killed, right? The White House will be blown up. Like, this is the moment, right? And there's a difference between beep, 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 the chronological time is ticking away and the passing instant that must be grabbed, that must be, taken advantage of. And in this text, when Paul says that time is short, and actually the word is, it's not like, the the word is compressed. He's saying time has been compressed. He uses the Greek word kairos. He does not use chronos. He's saying our time is now. This is our moment. Our moment has been compressed. Paul is not saying, well, let me just say this. Paul does not use the word chronos. So he's not talking about how much time is left. Do you hear that? He's not saying there's a few minutes left. There's a few days left. Jesus is coming back any moment. Time is short. Look busy, right? He's not saying that. Paul is saying, listen, You are living in a special time. This is a special moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ started a chain reaction that began a new kairos. The future kingdom of God has broken into the present, and believers must now live in light of that. This is a new moment, it's a new season. Paul is not saying, don't get married because the end time is coming. He's saying the future kingdom of God is already here. It's not here fully, but it has begun with the resurrection of Jesus. And now you have the power to live differently today. He's not saying it's coming. He's saying it's here. He's saying we must live. Christians must live today. Like the resurrection has happened and like Christ has come once and he's coming again and the kingdom of God is here. We have, as Christians through the text, we have a knowledge that others don't possess. In the resurrection of Jesus, we've been given a snapshot into the future. This is where all of creation is heading. And the call of the Christian is to live now like it has happened. To live now like it has happened. See, in 24, Jack Bauer always possesses some knowledge that others don't. Somehow, he knows that that one terrorist has been off the grid forever, ever, and ever. He's showed up in D.C. right now. Like, he knows And he can almost see into the future like he's in DC because he wants to kill the president, right? And the president doesn't know it and the CIA doesn't know it and his superiors doesn't know it and he's got to defy everybody else because he's got to, this is the moment. If he doesn't act, the world collapses, right? His knowledge, his knowledge forces him to live a different way, right? If you know anything about Jack Bauer, I love Jack Bauer. If you know anything about Jack Bauer, his knowledge, he, he's not like this type of person. This is the type of person, I, I'm, this is you, we can't be friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the president's gonna be shot. Ah, that sucks. All right, back to work. Right? Ah, that's too bad. But I got a job. Man, too bad. Jack Bauer, he has a knowledge, and that knowledge commands him to live a different way. So you see, he sacrifices family. He sacrifices his own life. Dude's been tortured. Dude's, I mean, he sacrifices all these different things because he knows if I don't, the whole world's going to blow up, right? Nuclear bombs are going to destroy it all anyway, so I got to lay my life down. I got to sacrifice my needs, my desires for the world. So Jack Bauer has a knowledge. This is my Kairos moment. This is happening now. It's a fact. And if I don't step into it, I miss the moment to save everything. I miss the moment. Paul is telling us, telling the Corinthians, that this is our Kairos moment. That our Kairos moment was initiated when Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. That our Kairos moment is the time between Jesus Christ First coming, Jesus' resurrection and his return. This in-between time is our kairos moment. One commentator said this, this time isn't meant to be a commercial break or a lull in the action on God's divine stage, but a divinely ordained time marked by the giving of the spirit, the church's task of mission, and the call for decision on the part of humankind. That we, have, we are in a special Kairos moment right now. Christ has come so we can look back at his life. Christ has been resurrected and given us the spirit. So we're motivated and filled with the spirit for mission. That we're here to make decisions and lead others to Christ right now. And there will be a time coming that will be the end of this Kairos moment. That we'll be done with this Kairos moment. That Christ will come back and his work will be completed and fulfilled. But this is our season. This is our time. It's our kairos moment. Now let me ask you, how are you embracing your kairos moment? How are you living your life right now in your kairos moment? A book that I read about it's probably about 5 or 6 years ago now. Changed it really did change my life. It probably wasn't even a book. It was probably a, a couple stories in the book or a couple things in the book. Uh, it was a book by John Piper. I think we have it out there. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, Piper says this. Listen to this story I'm going to read from it. He says, this, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59 and she was 51 now they live in Punta Gorda Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells at first when I read it I thought it might be a joke a spoof on the American dream but it wasn't tragically this was the dream Come to the end of your life. Come to the end of your Kairos moment. Your one and only precious God-given Kairos moment, God-given life. And let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. I love J-Pip. Now, a couple hundred years ago, the Westminster Catechism starts off with this question. What is the chief, we said it today, what is the chief end Of man. That is, what is man on this earth for? What is our purpose as human beings? And it answers this way to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper has famously taught that those two things are actually one thing. We glorify God by Enjoying him forever. We glorify God by enjoying him forever. Did you know that is why you were made? That is the purpose for which you were created. Did you know that enjoying God makes you happy and brings him glory at the same time? That is our one big mission in this life. And Paul's whole argument here in chapter 7 is for that purpose. He uses a little bit different language. Look at verse 35. Let's go to verse 32 first. I want you to be free from anxieties, he says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So he's saying right here, if you're not married, you have one purpose. (laughs) Please God. I, single folks, college people, I know you think that your life is so busy. I know you have so many, oh, this is so, just when I get through this season and all of us adults, I'm sorry, like we look, we shake our head and we smile, but we go, she has no idea what she's talking about. Your life is probably as simple as it's ever gonna be. As you get older, it will get more and more and more complex. Okay? I have to wake up at noon every day. I only get two hours of video games. I'm going to have to study for like four hours. Come to my house. Just come to my house, please. If that's you, come over. Just come on over. I love it. Paul's saying here, if you're single, you got one goal, please the Lord. Worship God, love God. Let's keep reading. But the married man, mm-hmm, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, right? So when you get married, now you got two things that you have to do, at least two things, right? And its interests are divided And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now this is, this is a key to understanding this text. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit. Please underline that. I say this for your own benefit. This is for your good. This is for your joy. This is for your happiness. I say this for your own benefit. I'm like a father looking at your kid and saying, this is for your good. I want it to go well for you, son. I'm not trying to put rules and restraints on you that are going to be a heavy burden. I'm trying to give you some guidelines to promote goodness and joy and happiness in your life. Right? Waking up at 8 a.m. might seem like a burden. Right? But it's going to one day help you live in the freedom. Right? Right? But he says say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you so he's not trying to put a burden on you on them listen legalism puts burdens on us lays restraints upon us says do this or god won't love you do this and gives us a big list of things that we can check off to make god happy with us paul says this isn't about legalism it's about freedom in the lord right? I'm not putting a restraint on you. I'm not saying, yes, get married. No, don't get married. Yes, get He's not doing that. He's giving us freedom. But look at this. What's his purpose? To promote good order, right? And to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying, You have one purpose, glorifying God by enjoying him forever, being utterly and completely devoted to Jesus Christ. Paul says later on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing, say one thing, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. You have one goal. You have one purpose. I was reading a book this week. Um, I think it's a secular book. It's called Essentialism. Listen to this quote you can have only one priority. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the late 1900s did we pluralize the term and start making priorities Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. It's by Greg Mackeone. If you have more than one you have none. Paul is saying, Christians recognize the kairos moment that you live in. Christ has already came. He's already lived. He's already died. He was already resurrected, thereby inaugurating the kingdom of God, the new rule and reign of God. And Jesus has promised that he will come again and consummate that kingdom and all of his enemies will be destroyed and everything wrong will be made right. Everything sad will come untrue. And now we live between the times. This is our Kairos moment. So living for the glory of God and enjoying God is our only priority. It is our one thing. Marriage is not our priority. Buying stuff is not our priority. Building empires is not our priority. Paul is trying to give radical, practical, pastoral advice for Christians here on how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And really, this is just a building off. I can see where he's building off Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, where Jesus said, Do not be anxious, right? Do not be worried about what your life is. Do not be worried about your clothes. Do not be worried about what you're going to eat. What does Jesus say there? Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not worry. Instead, seek first God. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says, you have one priority. Paul says, you have one priority. Glorify God by enjoying him forever. Marriage is transient, not ultimate. What does he mean when he says, Mourn like you don't, mourn like you're not mourning? Mourning is not the last word. Mourning and grief, has they can, it can take over your life. That tragic, the tragedy that happened, uh, I can't remember what it was, right off the top of my head, I think, uh, if it was in Afghanistan or Pakistan, I can't remember what happened, where the, uh, the landslide and, and, and a couple thousand people, I think, were buried. And, and it showed the picture of the wives mourning on top of the, the rubble, the pile of it. And all night and all day and all night, they were there wailing. Right? We, don't, we don't get grief here. We don't, we don't get grief like that in our society. We feel it, but we don't know how to express it. That and if you've ever really, really suffered loss, you know how that loss can overtake you. That loss can dominate you. That loss can change the course of your life from this moment on. And Paul's saying, don't mourn like that. Mourn with a hope. Mourn knowing this is a kairos moment and he'll make everything right. And then he says, laughter. Well, why would he make talk about, why would he make laugh? Laugh like what? Laugh? You know what the, the fool does, right? You know, you know a person that just, their whole point in life is to make everybody laugh and to be fun to be the big funny guy and just being a fool can completely dominate their life. Is it fun to be married to that guy? Can't keep a job, but boy, you can crack everybody up. Right? Laugh. Don't let, don't let laughter or tears be the last word in your life. So you shouldn't be lost in either one. Laughter will end, tears will end. C- great coming of Christ. Laughter went into a great coming. I didn't mean to say that. And then, then lastly, he says, buy don't, like you don't own. Buy goods. What does that mean? Don't let your possessions possess you. And if we tag this on to last week, all Paul is saying here, when he talked about slaves last week, slaves of Christ, all Paul is saying here, live in this world with a different Lord. Live in this world with a different master. If you remember from last week, slaves ultimately had one job please your master. Christians likewise have one job love and obey your master. Marriage isn't bad, but it definitely complicates my priorities. Laughter and grief, business, financial pursuits, they're not bad, but do they complicate my priorities? Absolutely. Do they make things more complex? Absolutely. Is it harder for me to keep God at the center of all things right now with three kids and one on the way and running a church, right? Is it harder for me to keep Christ at the center? Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to wake up. I could wake up anytime between six and seven. I could go downstairs, I could get my cup of coffee, and I had a solid hour, hour and a half of just me and Jesus. Now, my alarm goes off. Creak. Zoe, where are you going, Dad? Oh. Can I watch Sophia? Can I watch Sophia? Immediately, right? Listen, if you're not a Christian, this might sound really weird to you, and that's okay, really foreign to you. But let me give you, I'm going to give you two reasons why glorifying God and enjoying him forever is the one thing that we should live for, is the one priority that we have. I'm going to give you two reasons. Number one, the glory of the creator. What does glory mean? Ladies, I'll tell you what glory means. When you, I hate to do this, when you look at your ring and you go, oh, And then you look at that one lady that you work with, right? Or that one ring that you saw that one time and you see that thing, you're like, her glory outweighs your glory. Okay. That's what it means. It means weight. Glory means weight, splendor, just being spectacular, worth value. It means all of that. And God, because by definition, he's the uncreated creator. He had no beginning. He's always been, always was, and he created everything that we see, including us, out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. Therefore, his glory is heavier, weightier, more meaningful, more real than anything else in the world. Anything else that you can live for. And because he created you, we should glorify him and enjoy him. Because he's the most glorified, he's the most, he has most glory than anything else in the existence. He's the best thing to worship. He's the most weighty thing to put our trust in, okay? So number one, the glory of creation. Because by definition, he's the creator. He's more valuable than we are, so we should worship him and glorify him and enjoy him, right? Now, that's number one. Secondly, so one, the glory of the creator. Number two, the beauty of new creation. The beauty of new creation. That God the. The most glorious being in existence saw our plight, saw where we were as humanity, saw our brokenness, saw our sin, and sent God exists in a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sent the Son, Son, I have a mission for you. For the foundations of the world, they worked out this deal. Son, I want you to go in time. I want you to step out of Kairos and step into Kronos. I want you to put flesh on. I want you to live a perfect life, show these humans how to live a life completely glorifying me and enjoying me forever. I want you to show them how to do it. Then I want you to die to pay the cost of their debt of sin. Because they don't worship me, they don't glorify me. They look at God, which is the most glorified, the most has the most glory in all things, and they go, Ah, I think I'd rather have this. Right? That's like a wife. He spent 20 grand on this ring. He puts it on her finger, and she's like, I saw one at Chuck E. Cheese that I like a lot better. Do you have a few tickets? Let's go get that one. That's what it's like. Would that husband be offended? Right? He would probably take her to the psychiatrist, right? Something is wrong with this woman. Actually, he'd probably go, praise Jesus. I got a good one. I'm going to give her that thing, right? Take this back. I'm getting a boat, right? <laughs> <clears throat> that, but that, that would be... That would be a sin against him, right? That would be a sin against him. He spent all this money, put all this, he put this glorious rock on your finger and you want Chuck E. Cheese? That's a sin against him. Multiply that by infinity. That's what it's like to worship something else or to have other priorities than glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Christ Jesus, the perfect son of God, came, lived your life, died your death, was resurrected to give you new life. And you go, nah, I don't really want it see when you when you notice the beauty of what Christ has done and what he's started in his kingdom and the beauty in the in, in the new creation that he started now that everything sad will come untrue every tear will be wiped away from our eyes all the things that break us apart as humanity and as civilizations all those things will be gone sin will be removed jealousy envy selfishness will all be removed so worshiping God, glorifying God, enjoying him forever is enjoying what's gonna happen in that new creation. It's enjoying it right now. That's why in missional communities and, and in churches that are focused on the you get these little glimpses into the kingdom of God, you get these little windows and that's what it's like to get grace when I sin. That's what it's like to love people that aren't like me. That's what it's like to someone to love me when I've done something wrong. That's what it's like to get forgiveness. That's what it's like to get, to be patient you get these little glimpses inside a gospel-centered community. Now, listen. It's fairly easy for me to get up here week in and week out and say things like, I've been saying the past few weeks, adultery is bad, divorce is bad. Like that has all this statistical weight behind it. It's got plenty of quantifiable evidence showing that it brings financial problems, it damages children emotionally, that oftentimes handicaps them their entire life and it brings all kind of unnecessary difficulties and complexities to family. Like you don't have two Christmases to attend, you've got four, six, or eight. Like which dad will walk me down the aisle? Sperm donor dad, stepdad one, or stepdad two? Tough decision. It's pretty easy for me to communicate that that's not good. But what's really tough is to stand up here and tell you this, Our greatest danger in life isn't from the affair or the divorce. It's from the good things in our life that are taking the place of the one prior thing. Our only purpose, our only priority is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's usually the good things that crowd out the best things. That's the essence of what the Bible calls idolatry. You take things and you live like they are the best thing. Some of you spend maybe an hour a week in the word of God, but you spend six to 10 on a baseball field. Some of you have two-income homes where both of you are working 60, 80 hours a week and the kids spend more time at the daycare than they do with you. And then you try to cram sports and family time and church time in that already overloaded schedule. You need to detox. You need to find your one true priority and then get rid of all the extra stuff that is competing with that. Can you get married? Sure. Can both parents work? Sure. Can your kids play Little League? Sure. If God is at the center of it all and you aren't stressed out, do not be anxious, Jesus says. Do not be stressed. We have taken far too many cues from our current American society and we think that our kids have to have every single gadget ever made. They need to be four sport athletes with the same gear the pros use. They need to have six practices a day, four games a week, or six practices a week, four games a week. Best league, and we don't even have time for our personal devotions. We don't have time for a little few minutes for prayer. We don't, especially don't have time for family devotions around a dinner table every night. Our kids need us to have some margin in our lives. Margin. Space to think. Space to breathe. They need to see us enjoying God Enjoying deep friendship, deep community with the people of God, and letting Jesus continue to change us from day to day to day into his likeness. And that cannot happen when your schedule is overpacked and your soul and mind are going 100 miles per hour. Can't happen. Intimacy with your wife doesn't happen when you're both going 100 miles an hour. It happens when you slow down. Intimacy with your Savior, intimacy with Christ, enjoying God doesn't happen on the run. This whole text, Paul is really saying, it ain't about your social status. It ain't about marriage. It's not about money. It's not about It's not about it. It's about enjoying God right now. That's what your kids need to see. You enjoying God. Listen, the weight of having our kids. Baseball used, I'm just gonna use baseball because it's that season right now. Used to be one practice a week and one game a week. Usually on a Saturday. Saturday. Now we have games on Good Friday, we have games on Easter, we have multiple practices a week, and then all of us, not all of us, but many of us have multiple kids, and then we've got two or three or four kids in all those things. This is from our society, and this is not good. And I've seen it a thousand times over, the all-star athlete gets to college, spends his freshman year going wild, going crazy, quits the sport. Guess what, mom and dad? All of that money, all of that time was a waste down the toilet. But you cannot waste a moment when you're living for the glory of God. Not one slow dinner around some good food Not one slow dinner, not one devotional conversation, not one talk about the kingdom of God, not one time enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the people of God. Not one of those things will be wasted. That's practicing for the great day. What happens when we get to the kingdom of God? A great feast. I can't wait for that. So here's homework. If you're married, this week, And I want to challenge you, put this in your calendar. Make it a priority. This week, you and your spouse need to have a priority meeting. You need to say, if we're Christians, our one purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What are the good things in our life? If there's bad things in there that you need to cut out, obviously cut those things out, right? Right? You can't enjoy God while staring at pornography, right? Cut those out. But many times, it's the good things that are crowding them out. You need to have a meeting and say, what are the good things that are crowding out the best things, and how can I cut those things out? And I'll tell you, for a person like me, I'll just say, oh, I just want to, that sounds really arrogant. I was about to say, I'll change it. (laughs) It's really hard to say no to good things. It's really hard for me. Can you meet here? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do that? It's really really hard for me to say no. But by me saying yes to all the good things, I'm, I'm saying no to the best thing because I'm a man who only has a few hours in a day and I've got a lot of kids and I've got a wife and I've got families and I've got a lot of complexity and if I don't say no to a whole lot more, I will waste my life not enjoying God or glorifying him forever. And I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my family. for you. So if you're single, wherever you're at in your station in life, look at your schedule. And here's the thing. The good things might make you feel good. You might get an attaboy from them. They still need to be cut out if they're not promoting, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And what I don't want you to hear is, I hope you're not hearing this. Hope you've been, maybe if you've been around enough, you know this is what I'm saying. But if you're new, I'm not saying, fill your life with church stuff. That's not what I'm saying. You can glorify God on the baseball field if you're doing it for his glory and not your own. And if you're parenting for the glory of God and not because you feel guilty about the things you've done in your past. So now you feel like you have to give your kid all these extra things. See, there's there's ways to do that. So I'm not saying just feel like, what am I supposed to do? Sit around and just watch TV, watch Christian TV or listen to your podcast. That's not what I'm saying. God does call us to be in a missional community. God does call us to be in a fight club. Jesus modeled that for us. God does call us to attend a weekly Sunday gathering where we're fed the word of God and we're fed the sacraments. These should be priorities that help you keep glorifying God and enjoying him forever as your top priority. I love that this is something I've been clinging to lately. D.A. Carson one of the foremost scholars of our generation, he said this, sometimes the most sacred thing you can do is take a nap. When you take a nap, you're saying to God and to everybody else and the boss and the kids and the world, I don't run everything and this thing's gonna work without me. I'm gonna practice for the day I'm dead and I won't be on this earth and it'll still go on. I'm gonna take me a 20 minute nap or an hour nap, and I'm gonna rest in the sovereignty of God. I'm gonna rest in the glory of God, and I'm gonna admit to the world that I'm not a robot. I can't just keep putting out, keep putting out, keep putting out. No matter what the corporate world will tell you, no matter what school will tell you, no matter what the coach will tell you, we're humans who need sleep, we need rest, we need margin. If you're nonstop busy, your life is not good. It's just not. It's not enjoyable. Busy does not mean successful. Especially not in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' life shows us that over and over and over again where he would wake up and he would, the crowds would be banging at his tent come do it, teach, 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 feed us, do miracles. And he would sneak out and he would go out to be by himself with the father to glorify God and enjoy him. And then he would come back to the busyness and the craziness of his life. My challenge for you is to don't think you're more independent than Christ was. The son of God was dependent upon his father. Don't live your life like you're independent of him. If you do, it will not go well for you. Stress, right? Anxieties, ulcers, headaches, sleeplessness, being overweight. It does all of that to us. That's what it does to us. Our bodies are telling us, slow down. Slow down. We are a human body with a soul. We're all connected. Don't ignore your body. Glorify God by enjoying him forever. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this text. That It's not clear, black and white, do this, do that, but it's We have one, one thing to be devoted to and that's Jesus Christ. Would you teach us as your sheep? We're dependent upon you. Would you show us how to enjoy you, how to glorify you by enjoying you? Would you show us how to live in this complex society with bells and whistles and buzzers and things vibrating in our pocket, telling us that we're busy, telling us that we have email, telling us that we have messages. All this technology that's supposed to make our life easier has actually made it more complex. Would you show us how to lie down in green pastures? How to be still and let you restore our soul like Psalm 23 says? Would you communicate to that to us how how, in this American society, can we enjoy you and glorify you and center our whole life on you and have you the great good glorious creator of all things as our one chief good and father we this isn't just because you're egotistical this is because that's where we find our joy would you enable that to happen would you give us grace for that to happen would we be a counterculture would we, would we be a slower people. I pray that you would work this down into the soil of our lives and the fruit that would grow over the next months and years would be rich and deep and meaningful for the glory of God and for our joy. And Father, as we come to the table now as believers, we rest in the work of our salvation, is done. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to earn. Christ lived, died, rose again, and will come again. And this bread and wine is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for our salvation. And we worship you, we thank you for this. We thank you that you would communicate that to us as that it would remind our soul that it would still the craziness in our mind and the craziness in our, in, in our soul, that it would still us and remind us there is no earning salvation. The work has been completed and we would rest in the kingdom of God, this Kairos moment that's already here. Do this again for your glory and our joy.